This is the History Tavern Podcast. The American Revolution was not only characterized by America's struggle to gain independence from Great Britain, but also America's journey to define itself as a nation deliberately distinct from its European counterparts. John and Abigail Adams, influenced by their own firsthand experiences in Europe, participated in this quest to shape what it meant to be an American. Both attested the excesses of European aristocracy and the rule of a hereditary monarch. Instead, they were unwavering Republicans. As historian Jeannie Abrams writes, for both John and Abigail, the widespread dissemination of knowledge and the inculcation of public virtue were keys to crafting a stable, enduring republic. On this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to Dr. Jeannie Abrams about her brand new book, A View from Abroad, the story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe. The interview picks up after I asked Dr. Abrams how previous historians have covered John Adams. For, for many, many years, by some of the flashier revolutionary figures, and especially over the last couple of years, obviously Hamilton very much in vogue, and Jefferson, and even Washington. So I'm, I'm afraid that in many ways um, uh, Adams has gotten short shrift to some level. David McCullough's book, uh, McCullough's a tremendous storyteller and a very talented writer and journalist, but he's not trained as an historian. But he did a lot to kind of resurrect Adams's reputation. And... Um, Jefferson and Adams, you know, we'll talk about this later probably, but of course became very close friends for a while, had a falling out, then rekindled their friendship, but had very, very different ideas. And I think historians, again, have generally seen Adams as being rather conservative. I really like to look at him more as a practical um, a realist, much more of a realist. Right. So I, I think that that comes closer to where he was. And as we go on, we'll talk about some of the differences. But um, I, I think uh, Abigail's had more attention in the last couple of years than John. But a couple of very good books, um, really specifically on his political philosophy, have come out. One by Ryerson, one by Mayville. And again, we may get into that. It's rather intricate and complex, so maybe the readers will get into that if they sure. look at the book. Sure. Can you talk about, um, uh, obviously, the theme of this book is, um, is sort of, uh, and it's the theme of one of your previous books, uh, in part, uh, about the first three first ladies. Um, what did it mm-hmm. mean for John and Abigail Adams to be a Republican uh, with a s- small r? Uh, not it, it wasn't just a yeah. way of governing, it was a way of life. That's correct. And I think for both John and Abigail, and we see this again and again, and, and many of the um, patriots were driven by these principles, but I think none more than John and Abigail. It was really underpinned by a great devotion to the public good and duty, and um, Adams early on wrote his then friend Mercy Warren to say, the underpinnings of all good republics is public virtue. And even down to the way that you dressed, uh, which is, I think, something that plays out quite a bit in um, your your book about first ladies, uh, sort of mm-hmm. plain, humble um you know, that kind of thing. Well, let, let me let me modify that a bit. I, sure. I think um, simple elegance. Right. I think that um, 
They felt there was a certain level of elegance that came with the position and that demanded a certain amount of respect. But what I think, say, um, the Adamses in particular and even the Washingtons disliked ostentation. Um, and it's interesting because Jefferson, of course, um, really touted um, the virtues of simplicity and, you know, kind of famously entertained uh, visitors in the White House in his slippers and for his inauguration, consciously did not go to the inauguration in a fancy carriage. But he loved luxury, kind of, a, you know, a lot of conflicts that we see in all humans. Yeah. So he came back from France with, I think, something like 600 bottles of fine wine. Right. Beautiful statuary, um, porcelain, clothing. So um, I think he struggled with that. And the Adamses also certainly liked fine things. Um, they brought back beautiful things for their new home. But um, very, I would say, consciously frugal and very conscious of not being excessive. And, and Abigail, I think, um, as much or maybe even more than John is writing about the virtues of being a Republican. And uh, it's sort of, it, at least in your book, it seems every chance she gets, uh, you know, she's writing uh, to her children, to her sisters, um, you know, sort of what it means to be a Republican, what it means to be American, and it revolves around how you carry yourself. Yes, yes. And I think um, she could be preachy at times, uh, right. but I really think she was sincere. Um, she really felt very much that honesty, integrity, those were the principles that Americans had to adhere to. Uh, can you talk and, a little bit oh, their government and their their interactions with one another and even in their dress? Can you talk about uh, John's first uh, journey to Europe? Obviously, uh, that's a big question, but his, his first journey, sort of what uh, the task he's given, and it's a relatively short journey compared to the second journey he makes. Right. So he was tasked um, with replacing John Dean as the three American emissaries in France. They were their their primary goal, of course, was to try to win um, the French over in support um, for the American Revolution. And John was really quite thrilled, even though he struggled a little bit with leaving his family at home. And this is something I talk about at length too. You know, he was conflicted. But somehow he always um, put his what he considered his governmental responsibilities and his responsibility to his country over his family. So he went to Europe with his with his eldest son, which is a, another interesting um, uh, area in itself. But he he went there to try to assure um, French support. And when he got there, to his amazement, um, some of that had already been accomplished. So he was somewhat frustrated. And he also um, was very frustrated um, with the ways that the emissaries operated, particularly Franklin. Um, they had been, of course, revolutionary comrades. But in France, I would say they moved farther and farther apart because, in part, Franklin didn't fit Adams's perception of what an American Republican should be. Too much um, emphasis on pleasure, mm -hmm. dining, social life, um, and uh, Adams was of nothing. Uh, he was highly organized. 
and he just looked with disdain and really, frankly, the mess that was left in bookkeeping and um, keeping records by Franklin. So Adams had this disdain for uh, the, the European aristocracy long before he visits Europe. And I think he, mm-hmm. I think um, Franklin doesn't share that same disdain, or at least he, Franklin fits right in, uh, it, it seems, in Europe. Um, well, one, one of his bi- biographers um, really, I think, hit the nail on the head when she said that he was a rather a chameleon-like personality, and he was able to adapt himself to whatever his environment was. So when uh, in Rome, do as the Romans do, right. when he was in France, um, he very much enjoyed, first of all, the adulation of the French people, and particularly the ladies, and um, he was he was successful. That's something I would think. I think that Adams didn't appreciate enough. He bemoaned um, the constant going out to dining, going out to the salons. I don't think Adams appreciated enough that that was a part of Franklin's success in diplomacy. Can you talk a little bit about Abigail on the home front uh, and? Uh, some of the challenges that she faces, but she's also really successful, something I learned in your book. Really, she creates sort of her own business. Mm-hmm. Well, Woody, Woody Holton, who did a lovely biography of Abigail a number of years back, um, really stressed that. I, I think he's incorrect that he really put the emphasis on Abigail being kind of a proto-feminist. I, I wouldn't go that far at all. But she did really expand her horizons in her husband's absence. She was lonely. She lamented the separation. But it did give her the opportunity to grow. And so she became very independent in many ways and somewhat of, um, I don't know what to call it, an investor, an economist. And she developed quite a successful um, small business selling luxury items, um, uh, ironically, <laughs> um, laces and ribbons, and made a profit. John sent, us, sent her those materials from France, and she used some of them um, as savings, some to pay their taxes, some to invest. So she was a very capable deputy husband in his absence and, and grew in many ways, even though she was constantly asking him to come home and constantly longing for, you know, their reunition. So um, John Adams, uh, he's in Europe for the first trip, uh, I think from 1777 or 70. He's, he's there a little over a year, I think, the first time. Mm-hmm. And then, 18 months. Okay, 18 months. And then uh, he's, I don't think he's home a year before he's um, t- uh, told to go back. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. Can you talk, well, you know, before we get into to why he sent back, can you talk about that second journey, which is so fascinating? I could read every yes, detail I, about I mean, that journey. This book almost to me is kind of a travel log. <laughs> it was, it's amazing. It was fascinating to me. First of all, the sec- first, we should realize that it was dangerous to travel. The, the war was not over yet. We think once he was in Europe, everything was quiet. So, um first time out, he was certainly, you know, in physical danger from um, British um, ships, etc. The second time, he had the misfortune to be on a ship that was a leaky ship, (laughs) and they had to dock kind of an emergency um, landing in Spain. 
And he was beside himself because he very much wanted to get to France as quickly as possible. He was there to hopefully um, go ahead and, and put out peace feelers um, to England and possibly um, execute a treaty. And he was very impatient, rather despondent. But he was very, um, I would say, creative, adaptive. And he and his party, which included his um, sons, traveled um, kind of by mule pack um, <laughs> across some very high mountains and all kinds of weather. And he himself said, you know, I've, I've traveled for my country in so many ways, but nothing as fraught as this. So they all got sick. They had terrible accommodations in many places, but um, he was very stoic, went on, and he was very proud of the fact that his um, eldest son, John, um, John Quincy, really, um, you know, comported himself well. John Quincy, uh, just an aside, um, John Quincy, the things that he's seeing so early in his life, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say, and I think you might say it in your, in your book, I mean, there might not have been somebody so well-traveled at his age uh, in, in that generation. Yes, and, I, and I, I would arguably say he was the most experienced, prepared to be a Secretary of State and President, perhaps, of any of our presidents. Um, you know, his presidency is another story, and it met with, um, didn't meet with a lot of success in many ways, but he was extremely bright and was exposed to so many places, people, um, and spoke many languages fluently. Um, really um, a, a young genius, I would say, and his parents were conscious of that, and they consciously, I would say, groomed him for greatness. They certainly did. Uh, so on that second trip, and, and John Adams would end up uh, with many tasks, but what, what's his initial task uh, once he arrives after the harrowing journey, you know, oversee a thousand miles over land to get to Paris? What, what's his job now? Okay, so I don't want to be, get too into the weeds because um, we didn't talk about his frustration in France. Um, many ways. He really saw the French foreign minister as kind of a thorn in his side and the American side. And I'm not sure why he was surprised about this, but he eventually realized that the goal of French diplomacy was not necessarily to help the Americans become world leaders. The goal of French diplomacy was to shift the balance of power and make sure that the French dominated over the English. So he and Vergennes did not see eye to eye often, and that when he got there the second time, he also felt um, nothing could be done. Um, he wanted to negotiate directly with the English, part of the American treaty, and um, Franklin felt that... Um, that the French would first have to become involved. So with great frustration, he eventually left almost on his own to the Netherlands to see if he could do something for his country there. And that's probably his area of greatest success. The loans that he negotiated with the Dutch um, were really the vehicles that carried the Americans through 
and very fragile times where they really verged on bankruptcy. What did he think about the Dutch in comparison to the French? Well, since they helped him along, he was, uh, <laughs> had a more favorable opinion. And, and I, he, he, I can't say that he was totally negative about the French. He very much appreciated um, French culture on a certain level. Um, he certainly appreciated the French charm and um, polite society. But he felt, I think, a more kindred spirit, at least at first with the Dutch, because he found them to be very industrious, frugal, organized. Those were all characteristics that really resonated with John. Um, I want to shift a little bit more to Abigail, or I guess the, the first question, um, and obviously you touched on it already, Abigail sort of played the role of deputy husband when, when John was in Europe. Uh, and, and you refer to their, and they had a strong marriage. I mean, Abigail, uh, John referred to her as his ballast, and and she really was an advisor. Um, and you wrote that uh, their marriage basically endured because of shared values, deep mutual affection, uh, and respect, as well as a match in intellect. And that's certainly the case if you read Abigail's letters. Was that unique for the, I mean, I know that's a big question, but was their marriage yes, somewhat I w- unique? I wouldn't say it was unique, but they, I would say that they were an unusual couple. I mean, Mercy Warren and her, her husband, James, and, and they were, um, were supporters of the revolution in Massachusetts and originally very close friends of the Adamses as well. But I think... Um, it, it was an 18th century marriage in many ways. Um, certainly, Abigail never questioned um, what was for them a fact that John was the undisputed head of the household. Final decisions rested with him. But that being said, um, I think John was very sensitive to the fact that he had married a very unusual, talented, really brilliant woman. And he had great respect for her. So he did take his, her advice seriously. He did consult. But again, remember, she wanted to go um, to Europe, and he finally put his foot down and said no. When they were thinking about purchasing um, a home in a different area that Abigail had suggested in Europe, he, he negated that, and she, and she gave in. But I think he really, first of all, I think he really liked women, respected women. And I think it's interesting, Jefferson, who we think of as being more democratic in quotes, whatever that uh, means exactly, um, when he received a letter from Anne Bingham, who was in Europe for many years and became a leader in society in Philadelphia, um, in the new nation, she wrote him and said when she was in France how impressed um, she was with how politically influential some women were in France and that they voiced their opinions. And he kind of wrote back and said, to, I'm, I'm not, these aren't his words, but the effect was, oh, you shouldn't be troubling your pretty head with politics. Your, your job in life is to um, soothe your husband so he can be involved in politics. So I would say Adams didn't feel that. He felt that there were a number of women who, could certainly hold a political discussion and had valuable opinions. So I think of the two, I would say that John, in general, was more respectful of women and their intelligence. So I think that's that was 
um, as liberal as one could get in his era. Right, right. Um, and, and I think you see that play out a little bit again in, in your in your other book about the first ladies, especially with Martha Washington. Obviously, she was married in the context of the 18th century, but she was not at all removed from politics and certainly not removed from uh, influencing things from time to time. Right. Although nowhere is, I would say, ne- never as as strongly as um, Abigail, Abigail nor her nor um, Dolly Madison. Right. Right. Um, so, at what point does Abigail join uh, John in Europe? So John uh, eventually, um, when he decides to stay longer, um, and she's begged him to come home and not to take a new position if he's given one by um, Congress, and we know eventually he becomes the first minister to England. Um, so a he decides he needs her by his side as as that uh, in that new diplomatic position, and b she's feeling enough is enough. Um, there's so many years we've been separated, so. She joins him for the last four years. She's very ambivalent, but a few circumstances change that make her more inclined to go. Her father passes away, and that was one of her responsibilities at home. She's able to place her two younger boys with her sister and brother-in-law, even though it's wrenching to leave them. So she um, she travels with Nabby. The trip itself is quite a quite a ordeal. Um, and um, a voyage across sea is a challenge in those times, no matter how you're going and what the weather is. But um, she manages somehow, and she, again, she's such a lovely, articulate, engaging writer, and she keeps a diary, and we know so much about the trip um, from her own words. And she first joins him briefly. There, They meet in London, although... Um, uh, uh, John is busy in the Netherlands still, so he sends John Quincy ahead to meet uh, Abigail and Nabby. And then they travel to France. And France is quite an eye-opener for her. Um, they live in a beautiful, well, what was a beautiful rented mansion, something of 40 rooms, um, quite a difference from what they had at home. And um, she has to learn to navigate a new lifestyle, but she is so observant and tells us so much about life in France at the time and the nobility. And when she gets to England, I would say she's even more articulate about her encounters with King George and Queen Charlotte and her observations on the great chasms between the rich and poor in England and France. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, so obviously we uh, talked about Franklin, who was this great politician and statesman who could sort of um, adapt himself uh, to surroundings and be effective. Um, and and the obviously, again, the theme of your book is how Adams and uh, John and Abigail are shaped by their experience in Europe and define sort of their American, what it meant to be American and Republican uh, by sort of contrasting it with what it is to be sort of European and what they see there. What does Europe do for Jefferson? How is he, how is he changed oh, by Europe? Well, yeah. um, Jefferson abhors, and he says it over and over again, abhors the aristocracy, abhors the monarchy. 
Um, and it, it really moves him, I would say, somewhat more to the left. Um, Jefferson develops a view that Americans are exceptional and that America is a perfect um, backdrop for um, a republic, a democratic republic. Um, Adams and even Adam, uh, Abigail, excuse me, John and Abigail never had that same feeling. I think they felt that their America per, uh, really provided great opportunity because of the size of the country, the richness of the resources, um, particularly in their area of New England. They felt that the people there were very um, virtuous, honest, hard workers, but they never felt that Americans were a different breed of human than anywhere else, and that um, humans were humans all around the world, and they could be subject to the same challenges in Europe or in America, and that's why I think they felt Americans had to be exceptionally on their guard not to fall prey to some of the challenges in Europe, and amongst them, of course, was that ostentatious lifestyle for the rich, the great chasms between the uh, rich and the poor. So while Jefferson felt that there was something innate about Americans, I think John Adams really felt that um, the only way that you ensured liberty and equality of opportunity was through careful lawmaking. Uh, And and to that end, can you talk about uh, and I, I, you know, obviously we're we're not uh, dealing with everything that that John and Abigail did in Europe. Uh, that's why you read the book, uh, which is a that's great right. book. Uh, so. <laughs> um, but can you talk about so, sort of towards the end of his uh, their time in in Europe? Um, first, what what role is John playing? Obviously, he was not at the Constitutional Convention, but he wasn't uh, a bystander either. Um, can you talk about sort of his role uh, in sort of um, helping to 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 uh, shape the Constitution and then get it ratified? Well, first of all, I you know I want to point out one of the. One of John's talents, I guess I would say, or one of his major contributions was his correspondence and kind of that international um, republic of letters that he was in touch with so many people back home, even influential politicians. And I think people had respect for his ideas. He was probably the most talented um, political scientist of the Americans at his of his time. He read so widely and deeply. And so for him, um, he really felt the only one of the ways forward, not the only way, but one of the ways forward for American success in the new government was to, of course, um, create a very balanced government. He always spoke about power having to speak to power. And, um, of course, he was maybe one of the strongest proponents for a balanced um, government. But um, he did interact with many of the people on the ground back home, and he supported the Constitution. I think it's notable. He said, it's not perfect, but it's the best we can do now, and we can always um, tweak it a bit later, which is what you know has happened in the Bill of Rights, et cetera. And so he felt he was very optimistic. 
he felt that the Constitution provided the best blueprint forward for success um, in the American experiment, even though he would have liked to have had an even stronger executive. Right, right. And again, that's sort of the that is the basis of the uh, where where him and Jefferson differ. I mean, he he. Ha- That's one 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 of the one primary of them. Right, areas. Right, right, right. Um, can you uh, can you talk just a little bit about um, is, is Europe starting to change a little bit by the time that that John and Abigail leave? Well, I, I think what what they're very concerned about is they see that I, one of them remarks, and I think it's John that it just seems that the European nations are constantly jockeying for power and they're always on the edge of war. And he's very concerned um, that America should not be involved in those wars because as a young nation, they really have to look inward um, in building themselves up economically. And so I think his feeling was we're not going to make any political, we shouldn't make any political alliances with European countries, but we should really work hard to make economic um, treaties. And he had a little success, but I think he was very, very frustrated um, because he felt, and he says that at one point, that we're kind of a football between the English and the French, and they're, they just kind of react to us in between um seeing how we can help them versus one another. So you said that, I mean, basically that that John uh, could have learned uh, how to play the game a little bit better. I mean, he, you know, uh, like like you said earlier, um, he, he <laughs> almost didn't seem to realize that the French have a perspective and that the French have interests uh, that aren't always going to align with the American interests. But you know, his time in Europe was also pretty successful, as you said, with the Dutch loans. Uh, he's a big part of the Treaty of Paris. So what what sort of, um, what allowed John to be successful when he was successful? I, I think um, his kind of stubbornness was, <laughs> was a positive trait at this point. His um, kind of tunnel vision at some times could be positive. His persistence, his integrity... He was. I mean, you mentioned the Treaty of Paris. I mean, he, he and John Jay really carried that treaty um, through. Um, Franklin was sidelined with illness for part of the negotiations, and he really let the two of them really take the reins. But um, he was very strong. He and Jay together refused to compromise on some a number of very essential issues. And really, when you think about the influence, the small influence of um, the nation, nascent United States at the time, um, they ended up with a very successful treaty and virtually got everything they asked for. And um, Adams later said he was very proud of the fact he wrote to a friend, I can't recall which, when he said um, the French call him um, the George Washington of negotiation. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, he was very proud of the fact, and um, as I said, in, in this instance, his kind of stubbornness, um, really, and his persistence um, did really win the day. I, I think he probably should have um, worked harder to uh, better his relationship in the early days in France um, with uh, Franklin, and he probably should have appreciated more that Franklin, in his kind of social way, was 
moving forward um, with the French. But um, all in all, um, I think he did a great job, particularly vis-a-vis um, the Dutch and in the final peace treaty. Uh, and, and one more before I let you go. How, how was he received when he came home uh, and, and sort of what was the immediate sort of influence that he had? Uh, like you said, he brought, you know, despite the letters that, you know, where, where Abigail uh, sort of talked about, uh, you know, the, the, the fripperies and, and this access, they came home with European stuff and I think even bought a much bigger house. Yes, they did. I um, well, he, they were both very thrilled and gratified that he was greeted as a great hero when they landed in Boston Harbor. So that was very gratifying to him. Then he goes on, of course, to be the vice president, and he famously says, "I'm paraphrasing," but um, uh, considers the vice presidency the most insignificant office ever <laughs> created. So um, he probably feels somewhat frustrated had an up-and-down relationship with um, Washington eventually, but you know he um, certainly has had an influential role continuing and um, as president. Unfortunately, he wasn't reelected, and you know famously that he, he was defeated by Jefferson, which is what prompted their, their greatest falling out. And um, he snuck out of Washington before the inauguration. Right, That's right. Reminiscent yeah, sure. of today. Sure. Um, but um, to his credit, I think in his retirement, he really became um, a sage um, for the American people. And uh, if, if you ever have a chance to read the letters between um, Jefferson and Adams after they reconciled, they are, they are just wonderful um, pieces, and um, I recommend them to everyone. They were both terrific writers, and I also feel that um, Adams mellowed as he aged, and I always think he had a great sense of humor, and he understood his own weaknesses and sometimes poked fun at them or tried to improve. But um, I I think it's um, uh, Ellis, I'm not sure, who, who says that Adams was the most human of the revolutionaries and and I think he was it, it is remarkable as as uh, as blunt uh, and as honest to a fault as he could be um, he was always respected by everybody I, and I think mm-hmm. that's a testament to uh, his character true. And Abigail um, even wrote I think her sister when she when she was in when they were in England and the English were criticizing the American government. She pointed out that they never, no one ever criticized Adams personally for any lack of honesty, breach of morality, or anything else. She was very proud of that. The book is of you from abroad: the story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe. Uh, Jeannie Abrams, thank you so much for talking to me and taking some time today. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast, and thank you to Jeannie Abrams. Please check out her book, A View from Abroad, the story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe.